Hello everyone, it's Daria and welcome to Impact Wellness. Today with my dear friend Anna, clinical nutritionist. Anna just graduated as a doctorate in clinical nutrition. We are going to discuss eating disorder and anything that is related to eating disorder. Anna is so much passionate about eating disorder. She has her beautiful story and I really would like that you join us and enjoy journey with Impact Wellness. Hello, Anna, and welcome to Impact Wellness Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, of course, you had to be on my podcast. Uh, we have been talking about this podcast as the other day with um, Emily for a long time. And finally, we got space, time, energy, flow to make it happen. And I say flow because today's podcast is so much about female health or certain condition that is related to female health. However, male also have problem with eating disorder. So if there is anything uh, will come on the way that you would like to tell to our male audience, part of our male audience, please feel free. Uh, we all want your amazing tips. Okay, Anna, you've got amazing story, right? Uh, about eating disorder and overcoming the treatment with eating disorder or how did you get into eating disorder treatment? What is the story behind? Um, it's actually a really kind of ridiculous story, but I think a very modern story of modern times. I, um, I kind of got my job from an Uber driver. My first um, working in an eating disorder treatment center, I had just finished my master's degree at the National University of Natural Medicine in Portland. Um, and it was so hard for me to find a job and I was just feeling really insecure and I was working at a Jamba Juice, interestingly enough, making smoothies and, um, an Uber driver on my way home from work, just small talk said, um, well, if you, you know, just finished your degree in nutrition, what do you think about eating disorder treatment? There's a center opening up. Um, they told me that they were applying for a position in psychology there. And I was like, oh, I will totally look into this thing, you know, just I'd small talk turning, I guess, very serious. Um, and yeah, I, I looked it up. I found the job I applied and it just was something that I knew I was interested in. Um, but wasn't quite sure, you know, in taking that leap and I got the job, didn't see my Uber driver there at the treatment center. So sorry <laughs> to them, but, <laughs> um, yeah. And that's kind of how it began. That was the start of my journey. I started as a recovery coach. Um, and it's just something that speaks to my core philosophies and principles as a healer. Um, and it's work that I don't feel um, like I'm tuning my horn too much in saying that, you know, I feel like I'm really good at it. So why not kind of nourish um, that part of me that says this is something I excel at and something that I love and something that fuels me. Um, and that's, yeah, that's how, that's how the journey began for me in this niche population. Right, fantastic. We say hi to Uber driver. <laughs> Hopefully he is listening thank this you, uh, podcast. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, thank you, Anna, for sharing. Uh, because this is a wellness podcast, impact wellness podcast, what uh, does wellness mean to you? Wellness is a little bit of a buzzword sometimes and can be used in a not so um, health supportive way. But I think to take wellness and make it something that does feel good for me i think it just means living authentically um if you are living your values and showing up for yourself and listening um to to that inside true self voice um and just continuing to show up for that person and whoever he or she is regardless of external factors or pressures um i think that that really is what wellness at least on my path feels like it just feels like being true to myself in all of my choices you know that's with my relationships that's with my um, education goals that's with my you know my nutrition and my lifestyle choices as well so I think just showing up for myself is something that I hope builds my own wellness and definition of wellness 
It's very insightful definition, and uh, to be honest, that uh, matches definitions of many uh, guests on my podcast. And I agree with you that the the wellness is a little bit over overridden word, uh, mm-hmm. and um, often used maybe in like very narrow way and describes yeah. anything that relates possibly to body. Little bit maybe we can talk about the mind, but that's it. And there are many dimensions of what wellness means and one side it's so much what you say and I agree with you being authentic and living from your true self from your insights yeah I think too it gets not dangerous that word but just like you know I was saying it can become a shield for people um, to justify whatever it is that they want to kind of push or sell or you know um that even is remotely related to maybe health in some way shape, yes or it's funny enough we very connected connected since the day we met because i was thinking about health just as you were saying health is used exactly in a similar way and um we need to understand deeper meaning of health rather than uh purely stacking to a physical appearance that seems um resonating to many for many reasons we want quick results and we rather don't work on our habits and behaviors but actually our habits and behaviors are driving what's happened to our physical self Anna you name yourself healer and I very much agree with this you are an amazing person and I definitely wish that anyone who listen to this podcast and um, has issues with eating disorder contact you and you're going to share with us how people can get to work with you and recently you graduated with a doctorate from clinical nutrition congratulate once again you. you deserve it that's amazing achievement and please let me know what does drive your path just go <laughs> where feel where it feels right kind of like you opened by talking about flow and like the flow you know you and i were talking about flow for this happening um i just I think I really, when, when I'm in my flow, I'm in my flow and something inside of me in my heart said, you know, learning is one of my passions and why don't you just follow that and see where it goes. And it's just kind of taken me further and further in my education um, and finishing my doctorate was something that I kind of was told by a couple people. you know, was too hard or was a pipe dream or was whatever. Um, but once you find that thing that gets your soul on fire and your heart on fire, at least this is my experience. Um, I don't want to deny myself seeing what, what, what happens, seeing where that could take me. Um, and I don't want to snuff that out. So for me, that's kind of what's been driving that journey personally. Um, and of course, getting the opportunity to explore with um, other like-minded people at the Mar- Maryland University of Integrative Health, where I completed my doctorate. Um, some amazing, amazing educators there who uh, I just admire so much and my colleagues um, and peers in the program who I've learned to admire so much and getting to explore that thing about health or wellness or you know whatever everybody's sort of um, specialty was, uh, was, was so really special. So my doctoral thesis, I think I'm talking in a circle, but my doctoral thesis was, um, on clinical imbalances, neuroendocrine imbalances within the eating disorder population. Um, and, you know, linking functional nutrition, integrative health and wellness to the eating disorder population, applying that to how we treat these people, these people who are suffering from something that's sadly more common than you might think um it's just where i feel i step into that and it just feels right and it feels good uh, Anna, about you and i want to stress this out is not just um your amazing education it's passion but i know and if you can share a little bit with us um especially i think it's going to resonate to that women who listen and who might um, 
need to recognize in themselves that they've got something beyond binge eating or emotional eating because you uh, also did suffer with some form of eating issues or eating things, right? Whatever is that, uh, right? Um, tell us a little bit about the story because I know that you also been playing sports before you've been so much into, you know, being very, very fit, but I'm saying like overfit and, you know, tell me, that's very interesting actually. And I think people should hear about that. Um, I am recovered. Um, and I think was tricked in a lot of ways. I think some of it was external, but a lot of it was internal too, um, in kind of tricking me into thinking that the way I look, my weight, shape, and size um, defined who I was as a person. And to think back on that and reflecting on that and, you know, working with people with eating disorders, knowing that that's something they struggle with, it's something that makes me feel really sad. Um, not in a pity way, in more of a compassionate, empathetic way, because I can genuinely feel in my heart what that is like to think, you know, the way I look is going to tell people who I am. You know, the body size I'm in, the weight I'm in, that is what the most important thing of who I am. And I think learning that the body size, your body shape, your body size is like the least interesting thing about me, I can say. Um, it really is. It's the least interesting thing about me. I don't have much to say about it. And I've found that with not just people that I work with, but people in my life, I feel that that rings true for everybody I've ever met, you know? So connecting with that and realizing that this myth that calories in equal calories out and exercising four hours a day and, you know, counting your fats and your calories and your protein and your carbs or, you know, whatever you've decided to focus on in your sort of psychological um, distortion. Uh, it's just, it feels like it's worth it. For me, at least in the beginning, it feels like it's worth it. Um, but in the end, it's not because the place that I ended up making those choices was a place that denied my soul in, in who I was authentically. And so I think connecting back to kind of finding what wellness meant to me, especially working in the wellness field. I think, you know, it was important for me to figure that out to be successful. Um, and re recognizing that choosing, not that an eating disorder is necessarily 100% a choice. Um, you know, there's other things involved in an eating disorder other than just choosing to restrict or choosing whatever. Um, but in choosing my eating disorder, I am also choosing to betray my soul. I'm choosing to betray who I am. And it didn't um, result in me getting those things that I thought I would get by making those choices. And I know we've kind of spoke about this a little bit, so I don't want to talk too much about the same things over and over. But, you know, choosing to exercise for all those hours a day, every day. I think that it's going to make people like me, but at the end of the day, it actually keeps me away from my friends and family and building those relationships, right? So, I mean, that's just one example of how choices we make in our eating disorders and be disordered behaviors actually take away from the things that we think we're going to gain from them. So that was probably the hardest lesson for me. Um, but once I was clear-headed enough to see it, it's one of those things where you see it and then you can't unsee it, you know. I remember um, last last year at some point I had a podcast with um, Rachel um, and um, she very much will probably confirm because she, what you're saying and what we're discussing here because uh, she also believes that, you know, everything starts, um, food relationship is really what creates um, inability to lose weight. However, you also point out, and we also agree uh, with Rachel on that, that calories matter, right? It's just there is a space and place for it. And um, definitely anyone who recognizes in themselves, women or men, um, that recognizing themselves an issue with 
or problems or negative relationship with food, right? And we go in a few moments to some symptoms and how people can recognize this. They probably should not start with my fitness pal or starting with calorie counting and going into this deprivation because they are already deprived. They should create first relationship with themselves better than trying to understanding what's really uh, going on. I just wanted to make the point because um, it's very thin line, right? Between this calories in, in out because science says this and <laughs> the thermoregulations and different laws will tell us you eat as much you expand or then you eat less, you expand more, you're going to lose weight. But then more and more, thanks God, doctors, scientists are coming out and they're saying, actually, maybe we have to stop to think that way. And definitely people with metabolic issues and then with emotional issues and um, psychological issues, maybe this is not a way for them. That's why we talk about personalization of uh, nutrition. I gave a little, little monologue here, but I just no, wanted I, to give my, my intake and uh, happy to hear what you have to say about that. I actually, I absolutely agree. I think it's, um, it's ignorant of us to ignore what we do know to, for the, as a means of helping someone heal from their eating disorder. Um, what I mean by that is, like you said, you know, you can tell a client that calories don't matter to help them try to get past their psychological issues with food. But at the same time, we know that calories exist, right? And that they have some kind of value in nutrition. Um, I don't think that they're the end all be all. And I think the quality of calories matters. Um, but at the same time, I think too, that there's a trap of falling into a common cognitive distortion seen in eating disorders, which is black and white thinking. So what is that, that, Anna? Black and white thinking is, um, a cognitive distortion that occurs in um, eating disorders, but in, in anybody too. Um, it's something I struggle with a lot. It's an all or nothing kind of viewpoint. Mm -hmm. Okay. And kind of not the inability to acknowledge the gray area, the shades of gray, um, and also um, the non-duality of things. So if I say the quality of calories matter, in a black and white thinking, it can go all the way to, you know, orthorexia, which is not a necessarily um, DSM-5 recognized diagnosis, but I think that it's something worth talking about and you do see, which are people who restrict their diets so much so in, for the sake of health. So it's a big, it's a big client population that we see, especially in functional nutrition, alternative healing modalities and things like that. People who are for the sake of health making these choices. Um, so like I said, black and white thinking can kind of drive, can kind of skew the stuff that we know and take it to a place that's not helpful. So I, I appreciate you bringing up, you know, well, calories do matter and they do, but there are so many other multifaceted complexities to health, especially body weight and body shape and size. And you touched on it too, um, beyond calories and beyond nutrition for that. You know, like you said, hormonally, Hormonally, there are things that can keep a person in a larger body despite how they feed themselves and nourish themselves, thinking about the thyroid, right? So that's just kind of one, one way that we can look at the complexities of weight, shape, and size beyond nutrition. And that's something that I appreciate that you and I do as healers and looking at the whole person, the whole system. I use the IFM matrix a lot, which is a systems biology approach, and it kind of looks at you know, assimilation. So that's digestion, absorption, the GI, defense and repair. So that's, you know, looking at immune system, inflammation, infection, um, energy regulation, mitochondrial functioning, biotransformation and elimination, which is toxicity and um, detoxification. There is also structural integrity. So that's cell membranes um, in your musculoskeletal structure and then communication, which is um, neuroendocrine factors as well as immune messengers. And transport, that's cardiovascular and lymphatic. So it's kind of another way of looking at the whole system in different pieces um, in terms of biology and how all of those things 
affect not just weight, shape, and size, but a person's health picture as a whole? Yes, 100%. And outside of biology, and you mentioned we're looking at someone's relationship with family, environment, mm -hmm. connection to themselves, to the environment, their, on the bracket, spiritual side, their beliefs, and... Uh, how they were born, their genetics. So 100% um, very important topic that uh, we are much more than, and you said nicely, we are much more than just uh, calories, but also much more than nutrition and much more than exercise. And those two components are always very much stressed in, for example, weight loss or mostly weight loss or any other um, lifestyle disorders. Great. Anna, why do many women suffer from eating disorder? I think that eating disorders are, have been historically considered um, an affliction to, of women. Um, I think that the research is coming out that it affects more men than we think and that the numbers might actually be closer to half and half than previously thought. Um, that's, that's a great question. I think something that a lot of people struggle to answer or are trying to answer in their work in the field. Um, for example, uh, Carolyn Costin has a book, Eight Keys to Recovery from an Eating Disorder, which I love. Um, and she talks about how she started a diet with a bunch of her friends in her early teens. And they all, she was the only one that developed an eating disorder. So, you know, why did that happen? So I think despite whether or not it's a man or a woman who's affected by this, the real things that kind of develop or influence the etiology of an eating disorder are your genetics and your biology. So, you know, like you kind of mentioned antecedents, predispositions, genetics, but also what's happening in your biology right now, as well as your temperament, disposition, or personality. So again, coming back to the true self, who are you inside? I am, like I, I've mentioned, I'm an all or nothing kind of person. It's something that I work on every day, walking the middle path. So that's part of my disposition. And that's something that, you know, makes me push myself harder. And, you know, to the point that it, it hurts me or it used to, you know, when I was in a disordered place, push myself so hard, I was hurting myself. Um, and now, you know, accepting that as uh, a vulnerability and a strength in me. Again, trying to see you know, both sides of it, not saying it's one or the other. Um, and another thing that affects, I think, eating disorder development is environment too. So what are the stressors? We think about um, society, social media, things like that. They all, we're always being bombarded with these messages about your weight, shape, and size, your appearance. Um, just because we're a visual visual people, especially, I mean, think about Instagram. It's literally just based on visual uh, media. So that's something that, you know, we're influenced by whether or not we, we would like to be. So all of these things can kind of contribute to the development of an eating disorder. And it just depends on what pieces you innately have and then what pressures are put on them to either open them up, unlock them, turn them on, or potentially um, push them into a a way that's helpful. So like I, I mentioned, vulner assets and vulnerabilities or strengths and vulnerabilities. My being an all or nothing person, it was a vulnerability when I let it blind me from, when I let it kind of blind me to reality or blind me to uh, moderation in the middle path, right? But it's also a strength for me because it pushed that part of me, kind of pushes me to um, give a hundred percent and like, you know, pursue higher education and pursue opportunities and relationships and work a little bit harder. That kind of part of me that is also, you know, a perfectionist, these little traits that we see in ourselves. So I think when we let those things become at vulnerabilities, when we let the traits that make us kind of susceptible or the genetics that make us susceptible, right? We can't really help that, but, or the environmental factors that make us susceptible. When we let those push who we are and shape who we are, and we don't try to keep it in check and keep it connecting back again, I say values a lot, but connecting back to our values. Sometimes we get pushed down a path that again is so far disconnected from those values that we don't even know how we got there. And I think that's 
the path that a lot of people with eating disorders are on. Yeah, that's that, um, what I'm seeing. There is uh, recently one um, actually Instagram account. And um, for that purpose, I think there is a space for this account. I'm not going to share the names, uh, but uh, they so much uh, focus dietitian and um, they actually trying to tell people to eat carbohydrates, to eat fats, to don't be afraid of eating bread, pasta, right? And the other day I was thinking, knowing my uh, functional <laughs> medicine um, education or nutritional therapy education, I said, okay, but uh, you know, if someone has issues with um, that food that actually can trigger nervous system and make them feel not well, right? But from the other side, they write because we don't want to have this negative relationship with food. So there is always that thin line when you work with practitioner. So they recognizing in you your predisposition and your susceptibility. Mm -hmm. That's why maybe for someone who has suffered from eating disorder, starting with, like you said, you're talking about values, beliefs, which are very important because they don't, um, they judging themselves based on what do they eat, how, how do they look. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's lots of, uh, lots of valid uh, stuff. Would you like to add anything? Or? Um, I just think that that's a great segue into talking a little bit more about what you and I do as functional practitioners um, and how we can kind of see those things differently. Um, you know, someone, I love uh, food inclusivity and food variety. I think that all foods fit for an eating disorder client. And that means you should be able to nourish yourself as best you can with whatever foods you have available to you or in any situation involving food. Um, which was a hard thing for me to swallow when I finished my master's degree because I was so hung up on everything I'd learned and I had all this knowledge and that doesn't make sense. I had a, a client who's mother was upset because we took the clients to McDonald's for lunch a couple times, you know, maybe like once every week or two, we go to McDonald's for lunch and she started spewing, um, you know, calorie information at me and saying, you know, why would you do this to my kid? This is going to hurt her. This is going to kill her. You know, all this stuff. And I'm thinking one, I'm understanding your child's relationship with food a lot better because we learn those things from our parents. So one, I'm learning about, okay, this is clearly something that maybe they've learned a little bit from you, mom, which, you know, is a family therapy um, obstacle to work on in family therapy. So it's not really my scope of care, but two, um, I didn't have an answer for her at the time as a new grad and thinking like, well, shoot, um, I have, a, I know a lot of practitioners from my university who would agree with you. And I don't really know if I have the right answer for you. And so I kind of just said to her, this seems like a really good question for, um, you know, the program director. And I would love to talk with, you know, all of you around this and, you know, why do we do this? And the director of nutrition said to me, Anna, I want our clients to be able to nourish themselves as best they can in any situation. If we have a teenage girl going to school, let's say she's on the basketball team and after a win, they want to celebrate at McDonald's. I don't want her to sit there and not have anything. I want her to be able to fully experience her life, which is something that people with eating disorders aren't able to do because their belief systems around food and, be and their eating disorder behaviors control them and make them slaves to them. So they actually don't participate fully in their lives. And it's so, so heartbreaking. You know, think about somebody who, I had a client who um, at their wedding didn't have a slice of their wedding cake because of the calories, because of the, you know, because of their, their eating disorder and their rules. And, and so it's, um, it, like I said, it's heartbreaking to see somebody who's not participating in life fully. And I think this again goes into walking the middle path and thinking my body does know what it needs. And maybe having that cake on my wedding day is exactly what it needs. Maybe it goes against the things that, you know, I learned is that I was so, I shouldn't say that I learned because I learned a lot of things as in my education, but fresh out of it, the things that I held on to, it kind of 
cake kind of goes against that in, in some ways. And I think learning how moderation, again, walking the middle path moderation, kind of bringing that in there, I think that's really the key. How does that work for health and wellness, especially when our goal for a lot of clients is bringing them to you know peak performance, optimal wellness? How do we do that and still let them be people and still let them be able to make choices in the moment that are going to serve them and maybe not serve their biology perfectly. And is that okay? Um, and so again, kind of going back to what we do functionally and nutritionally is we look at that stuff and we think, you know, people believing that carbs are the devil, not, that's not sustainable, right? That's a belief that I had. Oh my God, pizza was like Armageddon, a bagel, end of the world, which that's not really fair. Um, but if you have celiac disease, a bagel really is going to hurt you. So again, a social media platform that says, eat the bread. I love it. I love to see it. Let's teach people that. But let's also teach people, let's test if you think that this food hurts you. Let's test and find out. And if it doesn't hurt you, if, if it doesn't hurt you, let's find out how to eat it in a way that is healthful and health supporting for you. And if it does hurt you, let's find a way to um, allow you to continue to experience your life to the fullest, you know? So I think that was yes. actually a really awesome segue into what we do and how we can kind of marry those two sides of things. I think it's a very insightful and definitely I agree with you. Um, especially often in what we both practice in clinical nutrition, we're getting people that are ill, chronically ill. And we both know that telling them eat McDonald's is not going to serve them exactly. because it is increasing so many, in that case, inflammatory response. And they are already in this response, exactly. right? Um, and we quickly want to lower that and take them away from this so body can speed up the healing process or recovery. And because body has capability to do that, it's just we're trying to create this environment and um, and yeah, that is that is tough, tough cooking, tough decision because then people have to live life, right? So maybe also our audience has to manage their expectations, right? And being a little bit smart about what actually they can achieve because they can only achieve as much as they decide to put in, and um, setting the goal and expectation on themselves. It's very important. <laughs> Otherwise, we a little bit uh, like which way to go. Uh, but it's very, very insightful, Anna. Uh, thank you so much. Let's only, uh, Anna, clarify here. What is eating disorder? What disorders are part of eating disorder? And how does it differ from uh, emotional eating or binge eating? Mm -hmm. um, I think the first thing that answers how eating disorders differ from, you know, maybe just emotional eating, um, or even um, if people experience binge eating, is that emotional eating, um, excuse me, eating disorders serve a purpose. And that's something that I acknowledge with my clients right away. How does your eating disorder serve you? Because we already know that it hurts you. Let's figure out why is it here? How does it serve you? And Eating disorders serve people by helping them cope. So I didn't feel good enough. I didn't feel lovable. I didn't feel special. So in hyper-focusing and overvaluing, oh, you know, when I thought think about the things that make me me, just making that whole pie instead of all the pieces, you know, relationships, um, recreational time, you know, all those things interests, whatever, hobbies, that whole pie was my weight, shape, and size. And that's how I evaluated who I was. And it helped me cope with the real issues, which is something that um, Carolyn Costin talks in her book that I'm always referring to because I just love it. Um, but that kind of was my way of coping with the real issue, which is that I didn't feel like I was enough. So emotional eating, I think is not necessarily something to be concerned about unless it is a practice that you use to cope with issues consistently instead of actually dealing with the real issues. 
So, and emotional eating doesn't always have to be a bad thing, right? You could say emotional eating is like eating at a celebration. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, eating your feelings because you're depressed. Depending what uh, emotions you've got, because you can eat from joy and exactly. because you're happy and let's say you have birthday, right? That's a very good point. Yeah. So mm. I think there's a spectrum of eating emotionally. And I think that that's a healthy thing. It's part of our food culture. It's part of our food story. And it reserve it, um, it um, deserves to be acknowledged as something that isn't always bad for us. Um, but it gets to the side of, um, harmful. I, I like to say, um, health supportive versus maybe not health supportive or less health supportive. So it gets to the side of harmful when your emotional eating keeps you from participating and experiencing life. And I like to keep that open because generally I'll say that to a client and they'll be able to know yes or no right away or after I look at a food journal of a week, we can kind of talk through it and it, those things pop out. So, you know, they're feeling really sad and instead of coping with their grief, they're eating, you know, uh, an entire gallon of ice cream. That's not a, a kind of emotional eating that is part of a healthy relationship with food. So, and again, this person cannot fully participate in life by using that as a coping skill because they're not processing their grief. And unfortunately, grief is a part of life. So I think that's kind of the, the biggest point that I'm always talking about, not just with clients, but other practitioners about eating disordered patients is, you know, well, let's talk about emotional eating. Let's talk about its role in a healthy relationship with food. And let's talk about when it goes to kind of the dark place. Um, and then I mentioned a little bit about eating disorders being genetic, biological, um, you know, personality disposition, and then environmental, those sort of come together to push and pressure and influence the development of an eating disorder. The eating disorders that are recognized by the DSM-5 are um, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, and then I like to include um, other specified feeding and eating disorders. This includes atypical cases. For example, um, anorexia is restrictive or binging and purging, but its diagnosis is connected to maintaining um, a body weight of less than 85% of ideal body weight, I believe. So if you're not underweight, you can be restricting, you could be eating, I had a client who was eating 800 calories a day, um, but was overweight. And she was never ever diagnosed as anorexic for years and years and years until a dietitian looked at her food journal and was like, wait a minute, you do this to yourself all the time. And you know, what's going on here and sort of dug deeper, asks, asked questions, got a feeling, asked questions, dug deeper and realized, okay, there's, there's not just the physical eating sort of behavior, but there are those psychological dimensions of disease happening as well. Um, let's get you some treatment. And that again, ties into the complexity of body weight, shape, and size, right? It's not always just your nutrition. It's so many other factors. Um, so I think that's kind of hopefully answers our question. Yes. Yes. And I really like this example um, because I believe there is many, there are many women who actually under eating. And in my experience, Women have problem with not not with overeating. They have problem with under eating. They many of them who I know under eat their basic metabolic rate. And mm -hmm. I don't know. I wouldn't suggest this to anyone. If you want to do small cuts of your calories because you want to lose weight, do it. But don't do it below your basic metabolic rate. There, this is there is science, right? The science like calories in and out. There is also science that says. You need these calories to breathe, move, make your heart working, make, um, you know, repair inside, produce new cells, uh, move your mitochondria, create an energy, detoxify. You need calories for this. And this is where that group emerging, a uh, group of uh, doctors is coming and scientists, thanks God, because they have the voice. I believe even bigger than us because it um, comes uh, with uh, respect 
to the science, right? We clinician, we applying that, but they saying maybe you need eat more to be able to burn more. And that's where I, when I was studying biochemistry, now 10, 15 years ago, that's what my biochemist told me. He said, carbs burn in a fire, uh, sorry, fat burn in a fire of carbohydrates. If there is no energy to burn the fat, how can you burn the fat? Yes, we have the keto diets and we're using the ketones and body has the ability. But then again, from my experience, not everyone does well on ketones. Exactly. Right. And again, <laughs> we need to look at across of where you come from. What are, what are your beliefs? What are your values? How did you grow? What your mom was eating before? Um, what is really your fuel? And use that to make a judgment what is the best nutrition for you but in the meantime keep that beautiful balance that you're discussing because you have to participate in life yeah absolutely right? i totally agree and i love what you said about you know acknowledging the science and seeing things beyond again we're talking a lot about calories which i think does i hope it doesn't make me hypocritical because i tell people not to worry about calories <laughs> um but yeah, I think I, science has two sides and we have to be discussing both ends, not just absolutely. discussing one end. Otherwise, we never will find the truth. And the truth is in the middle and the different people are going to need different truth. Absolutely. And you know, there are so many thinking again about the atypical client. So a client who um, doesn't meet perfectly meet the criteria for anorexia, right? They're not underweight or um, bulimia because they're not uh, binging and purging two or more times a week for a period of three months. Maybe they're only doing it once a week or uh, maybe they've only just started a month ago, right? So these are atypical clients or clients who aren't binging again, um, you know, two times a week. I believe it's two times a week for three months or more. Um, fingers crossed that's correct. But, um, you know, so we do see a lot of atypical clients and I think something that's interesting about atypical or or disordered eating in general is that the scale that people are scored on when they when they do the questionnaire about eating disordered thoughts and behaviors even normal eaters have some they're on that scale right they have some of those things so again it's recognizing that this is a thing that is pervasive in our society um it's something that people don't even recognize maybe that they're doing or that happens to them. Um, and so we as practitioners may see these things in clients and maybe they're not a, you know, typical eating disorder client. Maybe that's not their diagnosis. Maybe they're not even atypical, but they have these things that they do with food that I just like to say are, they're weird, right? If it feels weird, it's weird, right? So if you're, you know, if you're, if you're chewing and spitting out your candy, that's weird, you know? So again, that's not, maybe it's not a full-blown eating disorder according to diagnostic criteria, but it's something to work on. It is um, like clinical manifestation that there is something going on. It's the same as with uh, hyperthyroidism. Mm -hmm. We've got clinical line when we say you're clinically presenting symptoms, which may not serve you in long term and you may develop uh, an issue. And mm -hmm. I think that is, uh, again, valid uh, point, Anna. Anna, what are the first signs that someone is developing eating disorder? I brought up if it, if it feels weird, it's weird. So if somebody is doing things, feeding and eating that are strange, um, out of the norm, then that's a good sign. That could be using condiments in a way that's not how they're intended to be used. Um, it could be cooking food for others and not eating, um, kind of physically eating in a way that's different. So using utensils for foods that they're not meant to be used for, like eating liquidy foods with a fork or um, breaking foods up with their hands. Um, someone with an eating disorder who is down the road, on the path, being pushed on that path, away from their true values um, and into the realm of an eating disorder is going to, again, use food and lifestyle behaviors to, to cope with things um, 
and that just shows up in, in a lot of different ways. Have overt sort of tendencies. If you know somebody is, or you are um, purging, for instance, and that could be throwing up or it can be using um, things to help you throw up in terms of medications or whatever that is. Um, hoarding food is a big one. That's something that I found myself doing when I was in university. Um, drinking a lot of water, especially around meals. That's another sort of warning sign and behavior. And again, these are things that you may see people doing. Um, and I don't know if it's necessarily, you have to kind of acknowledge if it's your place to be open with them about that and your concerns, or if you feel yourself doing them, it can be kind of a wake up call. Like, Whoa, you know, I thought I was taught that you should drink a full glass of water before your meal so that you eat less. That's kind of messed up when you think about it. Right. Um, and, you know, not just the fact that it's psychologically damaging, but it also, some people argue that it dilutes your digestive enzymes and impairs how you actually break down that food. So that's another thing. Yeah. Right? It's, it's great that you're talking about that because um, I wanted to jump with a question that um, I think I want to awake uh, many because we know that those behaviors are going to affect digestive system. Mm-hmm. And affect digestion in a way that um, assimilation and absorption is not going to be completed, right? What deficiencies someone can develop as a result of eating disorder? All (laughs) disorders. Across the whole spectrum of eating disorders from restricting to, you know, binging, purging, binging, whatever it is, we do see a lot of the same deficiencies, which I think is interesting because it kind of goes back to, it doesn't matter how much or how little or whatever you're doing with your food, you're still hurting yourself and it's still going to show up no matter how you're choosing to do this to yourself. Right. Um, so I know, um, zinc deficiency is really common, particularly in, um, restrictors. Um, electrolytes are not always necessarily, strictly deficient, but they are always going to be imbalanced for the most part. Um, so magnesium, potassium, sodium, calcium, those are all going to be kind of wonky. Um, and also things to kind of look out for when you're working with an eating disordered client um, and kind of normalizing food intake behavior is to make, to keep an eye on electrolyte levels because they can, they can go really wonky when you take somebody out of those eating disordered behaviors and promote normal eating. Um, Vitamin C, B vitamins, particularly B6, B9, B12. Um, something I find interesting with B vitamins, especially looking at the eating disorder population, is imbalances in B vitamins also drive neurological symptoms. So we see those in depression and anxiety as well. Um, and a couple other psychological diagnoses, we see B vitamin deficiencies and imbalances. So you know, you think about how common an eating disorder diagnosis is with another psychological disorder. And, you know, as a nutritionist, I see that and I'm like, if we get gut brain connection, right? Gut brain connection, we cannot separate them. Uh, They they connected very strongly. What about omega-3? Definitely um, essential fatty acids, for sure. Um, And I would say beyond omega-3 is just fat in general with somebody who's restricting particularly let's say an anorexic who's um, someone who suffers from anorexia, who's not eating any fats at all, right? There's a lot of fat loss. So fat in general, um, omega-3s for sure. Vitamin C. It's so, I mean, we could just basically put the whole list of essentials, right? It's it's going to be many. It's going, uh, there are going to be many deficiencies, uh, but uh, I'm, Zinc is just very, very common one, right? And uh, yeah. zinc is so important. And definitely there is a problem with healing and they will have problem with um, with repair. Um, and I think uh, fats are very important to mention because I'm, I haven't worked with eating disorder um, to that scale, but I believe that um, uh, low lack of periods or menstrual cycle issues Hormone, are going to right? be issue. They're going to be problematic, right? Yeah, fats are the backbone fat, yeah. of our hormones. Yeah. So yes, if you don't yes, have yes. fats, you're not making hormones. And um, my research that I'm in the process of um, having peer reviewed 
it talks a lot about um, the role of the neuroendocrine imbalances um, and how our how reproductive hormones are are altered in people with eating disorders. And I think too, beyond nutrition, the actual behaviors of an eating disorder, so restricting or binging or purging, those put stressors on our body that inf impact our biological systems. And our bodies are really smart and they're always adapting and they're always trying to make the process of supporting our life easier. So the more we do things, the quicker our body is to use that pathway to compensate. So continuing using eating disordered behaviors over and over and over again actually reinforces these maladaptive changes in our biology. And then those maladaptive changes in our biology can actually reinforce and kind of feed into motivating more behavior use. So it puts us in this vicious cycle too. So the biology and the behavior can kind of interlink. I was uh, speaking the other day with uh, Brendan and we, uh, we discussed a, lo a lot about, um, I forgot the name, sorry, Brendan. <laughs> um, uh, but we discussed um, uh, clinical issues underlying inflammation of the brain. And I agree and you agree and you're just confirming what we discussed because we both said that you cannot reverse someone depression or easy the depression symptoms if they are biochemically imbalanced yes right so then it is not the therapy is only the solution the psychotherapy or counseling or anything like that or any anything like a mindset changes there no I do believe that you have to hit few angles. You just have to go to few places to repair yourself on different levels. It's yeah. just not you. I, if you change, amazing. But always the change can be easier happening if you address this gut, if you address brain, if you address inflammation, then you go to therapy, you talk, you discuss the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that you and I speak about often is embodiment and the different layers of a person. And so, you know, I talk about healing comes from within and that absolutely means within, you know, your heart, your soul, your spirit, but also from within your biology too, you know, and it radiates out externally. And then maybe there are external changes that happen also. And those changes can push back in and influence the internal factors. But again, oh my God, absolutely. Looking at all of those layers, right? So you could be doing the, all the cognitive therapy every day, hours every day. But if you are biochemically imbalanced, yes. and maybe that's being driven by, let's say one of the factors is a B vitamin deficiency or an antioxidant deficiency, let's say glutathione or selenium or whatever it is, um, that's never going to change no matter how much therapy you do. It can maybe improve because yes. that, you know, cognitive therapy has its value. It's a huge part of, of um, you know, doing any kind of work on yourself, but it's not the, the end all be all. There's all those different facets. And then a person who's doing that mental emotional work, they're doing the physical work, then they're doing the spiritual work, you know, doing all of those things. Then they all come together to really maximize somebody's ability to heal and find wellness and find not just that, but find who they are and maybe step into who they're meant to be and who they're meant to be if these things hadn't happened to them yes, or who they're meant to be because these things happened to them. And they made those choices to, to reconnect with themselves and to find the new path. Yeah. I, yes, I, fantastic. Anna, I've got a question uh, for you in regards um, kind of few tips from um, clinical nutrition. What would be like, you know, like I said, few tips that you could give to someone they could support themselves um, when they suffer with eating disorder? I, we know that they have to go to therapy. And they have to search professionals. So we don't want that they take this and they say, oh, I recognize this in me. And now I go and I get zinc and vitamin B and I'm fine, right? 
Yeah, but exactly. there are certain things they can uh, do. So that was a little disclaimer here, <laughs> right? Contact Anna, she can help you. But what would be the approach here? I think, like you said, first things first is get the help you need from the correct professionals. Um, but that's not to say that you uh, that healing can't happen, you know, on your own within yourself and your own work too. Um, I never did any kind of traditional treatment. Again, not to say don't don't um, seek out these healing these healers. Please, please, please do. But I didn't um, do any kind of traditional treatment for the things that I struggled with in eating disordered and overexercising and all these things. Um, and then when I started working in traditional treatment in a in a treatment center, <clears throat> excuse me, in a treatment center. I've started to learn these modalities and I'm saying, oh my gosh, these are things that I was doing with myself. So I think that there's a piece of healing that really is truly innate. We do know what we need for ourselves if we are open and honest and vulnerable, vulnerable enough to listen. So I think one good lesson is doing the harder thing. So for somebody who suffers from disordered eating or an eating disorder, the harder thing is not choosing your eating disorder, right? Someone might say, oh, you're so good. You're not having that cookie or, oh, you're, you're so good. You're eating such a light lunch. Well, actually for that person, that's, that's the easier thing. The harder thing is giving themselves a treat when they want it or need it. Or, you know, it's, it's part of their life experience. It's nourishing their body fully when they want to eat less. It's seeking out help, find the harder thing, could also be for someone binging or purging. It's reaching out to that person, to somebody who cares about you in your life and talking about the thing you're struggling with instead of binging or purging or both, right? So I think that's definitely the first thing that I knew that I was doing for myself without realizing I was doing it for myself was taking a breath and just doing the harder thing. That was definitely the first thing. Another thing is journal. Anybody who suffers, who struggles with this, journal. Write about it, write about it, write about it, write about. Be as self-involved as you want. Write about you and see where it takes you. I hope that you can go into that trying to connect with your authentic self, but whatever comes out is better than nothing. Stop weighing yourself. Just stop doing that. Just don't. Just don't do, just don't do that. I think successful clients don't weigh themselves. They journal and they ask for help. So doing all of those things are probably the, the three biggest, biggest things that literally anybody can do um, if they just take a moment to choose them. That's always amazing. Just one, one tip, one tip somewhat to someone who suffered from a negative relationship with food, where are they supposed to start? Finding... I think awareness. If you have a negative relationship with food, I think the first place to start beyond um, seeking treatment is just building awareness around what you are doing and how it is serving you. So if you are using, what is, what is that real issue? What is that real issue underneath all those things that you do with food? Just exploration. I know that that's not like a quick fix or like a, this is one thing you can do every morning, but you know, maybe it is right. We eat three times a day at least. So <laughs> at every meal, taking a moment and thinking about how you're feeling and the choices that you're going to make at this meal. Did you sit down thinking I'm going to restrict? Did you sit down thinking I'm, I'm out of control. I'm going to binge, you know, mindfulness is one of the biggest things that people can do, um, in recovery and building mindfulness. So, you know, practices that build mindfulness are also great. Meditation, yoga, emotional freedom, tapping technique is really great. It's something that I've, I've started using with clients and I think is fantastic. Um, so yeah, those are a couple things. So I guess I did have a couple like, yes, every day. <laughs> Good. Uh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Anna. How can we hear about you? Where people can find you, Anna? You're beginning your practice now, right? Yeah, I am. I'm in a process of transition. Um, so I don't have anything super, super solid, but people can reach out to me via email on more than food nutrition at gmail.com. So more than T H A N um, 
foodnutrition at gmail.com. That's, that's the email that I'm using. Um, more than food nutrition, more than food wellness. Um, I've got Instagram. That's new. It's really boring. Anybody who's listening, <laughs> I basically nothing on it, but go, there'll be, there'll be stuff soon while I'm, while I'm, um, stepping into, uh, my role as a healer more independently. Um, Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, Anna. I hope everyone uh, enjoyed and if you're recognizing anything in you, that maybe is a good thing to build your awareness. Don't feel shy, don't feel bad about this. It's okay, right? And try to search for uh, help. Anna, thank you so much for joining. It was my pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I'm, every time I get to see you and talk to you, I'm, I'm just so happy. So thank you. My, my heart is uh, uh, joyful as well. And thank you all our listeners. And thank you for joining again Impact Wellness.